Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmingen, and with me in the studio is my friend Niklas Savos. How are you doing? I'm really good today. Uh, I've had some holiday uh, and uh, also reflected a bit about uh, both both life and, uh, and investment uh, matters uh, over the holidays and over the new year. Something specific that stood out from those reflections? I think the last year has been has had a common thread, and that's uh, becoming maybe less focused on the stock market and and focused on stock prices and more uh, on on businesses and actually doing uh, the the research on on businesses. So that's something I take with me. Yeah, we have really been influenced by all of our great guests, and uh, today comes an episode with another such person. It's Dennis Shanshak. He is a seasoned investor and author that reached out to us after listening to the podcast. Currently, Shanshak is president and chief investment officer of Ocean Park Investments, an alternative asset management firm based on the U.S. East Coast. Shanshak has a really impressive background. He first worked as an equity analyst with Peter Lynch and other legendary investors at Fidelity in the early 90s. He then received his MBA from Harvard Business School before apprenticing with Michael Price on special situations. From 2005 to 15, Shanshak was a portfolio manager focusing on absolute returns until he founded Ocean Park Investments in 2016. His work has been featured in top financial publications, including Barron's, Fortune and MY Global. And Shanshak is also the author of The Five Keys to Value Investing, published by McGraw-Hill in 2003, and the book we will talk more about today. So, Niklas, how does The Five Keys to Value Investing fit with our quality rating here at Red Eye? So I think The Five Keys is a book uh, for those that are early in their careers and would like to understand um, the most important things that you need to have as an investor. So how to evaluate if a business is good, what to look for in a manager, if the price is right, and also possible events that can lead to a rise in the stock price. So I I think it could be used as a handbook. And as equity analysts at Red Eye, we use a quite similar approach where the Red Eye quality rating is our checklist in this evaluation. Yes, and on the Red Eye website, redeye.se, we recently introduced the concept of timeliness. And uh, this is based on future events or or catalysts that should drive the stock to its fair value. Uh, What did you learn about this concept from the book? So catalysts is is something that I've I've studied a bit before and uh, and thought about. Uh, But um, I think compared to other books, this book stands out because there is a whole chapter dedicated to catalysts. And uh, both uh, potential operational improvements and potential M&A and spin-offs are mentioned. So I think uh, it takes a bit of a broader approach than others. Uh, and I think it's a key subject for investors and and something to study deeper uh, because sometimes you can buy a stock at a cheap price, but without the catalyst, it may stay cheap for long. So uh, yeah, investors should clone the ideas in this chapter and uh, and potentially use them in a checklist approach. And besides catalysts, I think there are many other lessons from the book. And beyond the book, I really hope and think that our conversation with the author can provide many new insights on how to become a better investor. Here comes our conversation with Dennis Sean Shai. Hello, Dennis, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Where are you today? I'm in Stanford, Connecticut in, in the United States. And uh, it's, a, it's a little bit nippy outside, but, uh, you know, we had a good snowfall, but it's uh, all, the, all the streets are clean and clear. 
Nice. Today we will talk about your book, The Five Keys to Value Investing. And uh, I want to start off with the acknowledgements where you highlight the importance of great individuals at Fidelity and Mutual Series Fund. What did you learn from them and, and the firms? Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity to work with, you know, pretty amazing people at Fidelity, you know, um, you know, people like Jeff Ubbin, Catherine Collins, um, you know, Peter Lynch, Jeff Vinnick. You know, I, I noticed uh, very early on that there was um, basically no one way to, to make money in the markets. Um, you know, everyone has their own styles. And, but above all, I think what I took away from that experience was, uh, was really understanding and appreciating the apprentice kind of culture that uh, Fidelity have, had, uh, which is basically always learning, uh, always seeking advice, um, and always seeking um, uh, information wherever it could be found. So outside of, of the firms, uh, what, uh, what investors have most influenced your, your thinking? Well, you know, early in my career, you know, um, you know, I, I remember I wrote a, a letter to a couple investment legends, and actually, um, John Rogers at Ariel actually wrote me back, and um, so we met, uh, you know, um, every time he would visit Boston or so. Um, you know, and John gave me a lot of very, very good advice early on in my career. Um, I think one of the most important is that uh, you know he he basically gave me the advice to read everything I could about Warren Buffett. Um, so uh, while I was at Fidelity, I would kind of go to the library and um, uh, read, you know, the annual letters and the Buffett partnership letters. Um, after Fidelity, I attended uh, Harvard Business School. And during my first year, um, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, spoke to our class, you know. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I was uh, was right there in front row and um, he really th- had really thought-provoking, you know, things. I remember one of the things that he he asked us, which kind of, um, you know, he posed a question that I think will for, well, I, which I will never forget, which I think basically changed the trajectory of my career. You know, basically Buffett asked, you know, he posed a question like, why would someone, you know, sell a perfectly good business generating lots of free cash flow? And why would someone sell it at 30 to 40% discount in the market? And the thought was that maybe they could buy it back uh, at some other time. And then he asked, you know, what if you don't sell those shares back to them? You know, what if you hold these shares for generations and you benefit from the free cash flow and, and things of that sort? And it just, and he said that was the opportunity, you know, to buy really good businesses at great prices to really take advantage of the market saying, you know, volatility. And, um, um, and so that was, that was an interesting um, kind of, um, you know, thought process going, you know, when, when, when he visited. Um, and I called it kind of my rational awakening um, when I was there. And after graduation, I worked for um, an investor named Michael Price. Um, uh, which is where I started my career in value investing. So, so I would say, you know, John Rogers, Warren Buffett, Michael Price, and later Otam Oleon had the strongest um, impact, uh, impact on me early on in my career. And I, I just want to ask, at the time Buffett came, was it like a, a really huge event when he came? Or, I mean, how many in the class really knew about who Buffett was and his record? Yeah, no, it was it was huge. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was everyone basically lined up before the doors opened. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I tried to get a front row seat. So it was very, um, um, it, it was just mind blowing. I mean, the the things that the advice he was giving us, you know, anyway, he does this all the time in a lot of different business schools. As a matter of fact, I had an opportunity to thank Warren Buffett in 2000 at in Omaha during his annual meeting, um, which actually was captured, I think, on YouTube or something of that nature, where I thank him. I told him, told him that uh, I really appreciate him visiting schools, um, and um, he was pretty, pretty uh, grateful for that. 
this must have also affected your whole life, not only in investing in your career, I think. No, absolutely. I think, you know, pro- there, you know, there's value in proximity. So being close to someone and, you know, after the speak, he spoke, you know, walking down and, and just being within a small circle of people around him and just seeing his movements and gestures, you realize that he's, he, he's, a, he's a person just like uh, you, you and me. So it's, um, you know, that, that was kind of um, allowed me to say, you know, maybe this is something I could actually pursue and, and do well in. And I mean, he, he has really given back to given back his his knowledge to other investors, and and you have too with your book, the five keys yeah, to money investing. No, absolutely, investing. absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, um, you know, helping others and also explaining it um, what you've learned over your career is another way of basically solidifying all the lessons you've learned over the over the years uh, of a career. So, why did you choose to write it? Was it more, I mean, just as you said, to uh, to maybe learn yourself? about the around the whole journey or or was it to um to help others or both yeah you know when i when i started um you know the book basically started as a faculty sponsored research paper um during my second year at harvard graduate school i you know i basically re-engineered sale investments uh, made by managers that i highly respected at the time so i looked at investments made by buffett john rogers richard rainwater carl icon you know michael price um, and actually, my professor suggested I, I take a look at a guy named Seth Klarman. And the reasoning partly is because, you know, this is actually, you know, this is like 20, over 20 years ago. So, you know, Seth, you know, was a graduate of, uh, of the business school and also um, was, uh, was an analyst for Michael Price. So he thought that that would be a good person to add as well. So basically for the project, I basically try to come up with questions that these managers might have asked themselves at the time they were making their investments. So I read their letters articles about them and certain investments that they were making. And so, you know, I thought, I tried to think about what kind of questions would they, were they asking in that environment? So, you know, questions like, you know, what are normalized earnings? What's the market share of the company? How much debt does it have? What's the cost of capital? Unit economics, things like that nature. So I came up with about 200 questions. Um, so I basically wanted a checklist, you know, um, but the, the list was very, very long. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, the title of the paper was something like, you know, the value investing checklist. Um, but I noticed that those questions fell into five different buckets, um, price, business, value, um, catalyst, and margin safety. Um, so it seemed uh, that each investor, as I l- learned more about them, they kind of leaned on one or two of those buckets. Um, and each of them had their own different styles. Um, it was much more fluid than I thought. You know, Buffett went from, for example, you know, he focused on margin safety, you know, early on in his career when he was basically running the the, um, the, the, the hedge fund. And then later on, he focused on the quality of the business, you know, at Berkshire. You know, Michael Price would focus a lot on catalysts. Seth Klarman, you know, margin safety, I would think. Um, you know, John Rogers and the late Marty Whitman, you know, they're like good businesses, you know, cheaply priced. Um, you know, so, but, but the key was that, you know, the, the, their styles kind of fit their personalities and how they were wired. And that's what one of the things I kind of learned um, as I got to really understand what made these people tick, um, you know. And so, um, so, so that was the, the reasoning. And I think the reason why I wrote the book is really, it was really for the active owner of businesses, is really for the, both, both, both the, no, the, the novice person and also the professional. Um, I wanted a more practical framework 
um, that could withstand the test of time. So I did not want kind of like a, a step-by-step kind of thing, but more of a framework where you, based on how you're wired, you could basically lean on one um, key versus another. Um, and I think uh, I think that was achieved. And you mentioned these five keys. And uh, how, how should an investor or a reader look at those? Because in the book, I get the impression that you're searching for all the five keys in an in one investment, or how how is that working? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the five keys are basically it's basically a a kind of a blueprint in terms of trying to figure out have you do you have a sense of which all these keys did you go through all these keys whether it's you know um, you know the business um, is it a good business um, uh, the price which is um, why is this market offering me this at this price at this time and try to understand that um, of, of value, which is kind of, you know, what is this business worth? Um, you know, and there are different metrics you could use in terms of trying to figure out what the business is worth. Um, the other uh, key is catalyst. You know, if I think the, the, you know, the market's offering this company at $10 and I think it's worth 30, you know, what is going to get there? You know, are they, you know, are they going to break up? Are they new? You know, are they coming up with a new product? Are they have is it are they um, going to new markets? So, what's going to catalyze a stock from ten dollars to thirty dollars? And lastly, um, uh, margin safety. You know, if I'm wrong, you know, if I buy a ten and I'm wrong, uh, will the stock go to two or will it go to you know um, eight? So, try to figure out in how much I you know one can lose. So, it's really about situational based on the type of investment that you're that's um, that you're looking at. So, if you're looking at a large cap, highly liquid, well-established company that's been around for 40 years. Um, maybe margin safety is not that important versus um, the quality of the business or even what's really going catalyze to the, catalyze the stock. On the other hand, you can look at a very cheaply or really small <clears throat> company. Maybe they have some debt issues. Maybe it's a turnaround. Um, maybe margin safety at that situation is more important where, you know, a lot can go wrong. And if it goes wrong, uh, does the stock go to zero or does it, you know, is there a buffer there or liquidation value that could basically um, lean on? So it's all situational. And that was the intention of writing the D5 keys to value investing. And I want to dig in a bit to the subject of, of catalysts because I, I think it's sometimes a bit underappreciated. Uh, and uh, maybe you can describe a few sources of different catalysts. Yeah, you know, um, you know, you know, when 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 I wrote the book, you know, not a lot of people were talking about you know catalysts. This is over, you know, gosh, um, you know, uh, you know, early early two thousands. Um, you know, um, if if they if they did, they were basically talking about like one time catalysts. You know, but in the book, I I noted that catalysts can be yes, they could be one time events, but they could also go be ongoing events. Uh, it could also be internally generated and it could be externally induced as well. You know, this is one of the kind of lessons I kind of um, kind of observed over time. Um, even when I was looking at the, um, the the investors in the book, you know, one-time catalyst could be kind of like a spinoff, right? Or maybe they sell a division or, or they IPO or monetize something and you get a big pop in the stock because they, they have this, this, this cash flow coming in. Um, then you could have ongoing catalysts, uh, just as uh, let's say they have a new manufacturing process where they could take out a lot of um, redundant costs and, and and increase the yield of a product, or, or maybe have better procurement, um, um, or it could be something like you know in, instituting more entrepreneurship kind of culture 
where um, where you know the all stakeholders are benefiting from 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 the company and the business and and just productivity just kind of gets better. So you know you could have you know in the book I have this two by two where I show the internal external catalyst and also ongoing one-off catalysts. So I think that was, um, that's, I think that's the better way of, or one way I would, I should say of looking at catalysts. Yeah. And I think that, that makes it really interesting because I, I think the most common ones that, that are discussed are, are the ones like spin-off or an asset sale or uh, an activist coming in uh, to the business and so on. But you mentioned all these operational improvements, which is not always discussed as a, as a catalyst, I, w- I would say, but I, I definitely agree that they are because they show yeah. the actual value of the business. Yeah, our CEO is usually talking about soft catalysts where there is no date that you can see that it's going to happen and then you have hard catalysts with a specific date when a spin-off is happening or something is going on. So, so one interesting aspect that you bring up in, in the book is time and you call it the silent external catalyst. Can you explain a bit what that is? Yeah, you know, I've I've noticed that um, you know many good corporate strategies often need um, to reach an inflection point before expected profits to start you know to flow and spur stock price appreciation. You know, sometimes a combination of you know time is ba- is basically best to catalyze the, those profits. You know, Bill Miller, um, you know, uh, legendary value investor, often for this as time arbitrage. You know, the, the key for investors is really to identify the source of returns and if those resources or if that source will clearly benefit, you, you know, with time. It could be, um, you know, uh, going into a new product area or going to a new market um, where you just need time for, for, for clients or, or, or um, for revenues to start picking up to build momentum. Um, so time, in essence, could be a, a very silent catalyst. Um, it, 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 you know, often doesn't show up um, at a media time, at a media moment, but over time it, it does. And related to that a bit is uh, when you write that an investor should never chase a stock and you bring that up in the first chapter's case example, which is a spin-off story. So what do you mean by, by that, that investors shouldn't chase stocks? Yeah, it's it's really about um, it's really about behavior. You know, it's it's about the FOMO. You know, fear of missing out. You know, you know, as humans, you know, we are kind of wired a certain way. You know, chasing a stock is is basically buying a stock purely on the stock price price appreciation momentum. You know, you know, look, I mean, it's okay to buy shares of a company on the way up. If you could fully capture and understand the reasoning behind the source of returns, you know, maybe it's because margins are are starting to grow and you think it's going to really expand. Um, maybe they're gaining more share than, than the markets and yourself previously anticipated. I think those are good reasons and those are not chasing the stock. Chasing the stock is really going after stock because it's going up. You don't really understand or fully grasp um, why the why the source or why the fundamentals behind that. So, so chasing a stock is really basically buying on price momentum alone. Yeah, some things just take time and we need to be patient. So we know that one chapter was left out of the book, uh, the analogy. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the, the project originally had nine, you know, nine chapters. You know, chapter eight was supposed to be basically two chapters. Chapter eight was idea generation and chapter nine was going to be about building a portfolio. So the original chapter nine was cut short because I had this analogy 
that, um, you know, that I guess did not go over very well. Um, you know, I called it a conversation with Madam Index, you know, and, um, you know, it's basically a play on, it was a play on um, Ben Graham's Mr. Market. So in the early, um, you know, it's interesting in the early um, 1990s, um, you know, Jack Bogle was very, you know, was touting and, and talking about the Vanguard S&P 500 index. Uh, coincidentally, by the way, you know, Jack Bogle also visited my first class as well, um, talking about indexing and um, and uh, and things of that, that sort. So, so anyway, so th- this fictional Madam Index character that was kind of like that put in this this chapter was basically a portfolio manager, and uh, and she runs an index fund. And, you know, she beats, you know, 80 plus percent of, of the managers. And so I had this conversation with her. You know, obviously, this is kind of this fictional character. And so I basically asked her, you know, how does she do it? You know, um, and then, you know, um, there were a few things that came out of that interview. You know, Madam Index told me that she only focuses on three areas. She focuses on stock selection, um, uh, basically focuses on like, you know, the quality of the business. You know, she talks about how how she picks her, her companies. And basically these are dominant or semi-dominant companies in their respective markets, um, large dominant companies that basically can, can raise prices or squeeze raw material vendors or basically just really profitable large companies. The other area that she told me she um, basically, um, uh, you know, focuses on is basically um, duration. So, you know, she wants to hold on to these great companies for the long term. She does not have, you know, a price target uh, for these companies. She doesn't have a fair value target. She doesn't have stop losses or anything of that nature. Um, uh, She just let these dominant companies do their thing. Um, What was not lost on me, however, you know, when I was speaking to her is that, um, you know, she structured her business um, so that she could have this kind of patient capital. In a, for her to be able to do this. And the last thing that she talked about is really about risk management. You know, she, she was not a daily trader. Um, her portfolio was very, very diversified. Um, she had small positions and rebalanced them, uh, the portfolio occasionally. You know, um, so that was kind of like the, the way, you know, I had proposed this interview to go. You know, what was surprising to me was that Madam Index did not know the valuation of these companies in her in her uh, in her in, in her portfolio, she did not know um, whether they had catalysts or did not have catalysts. Um, you know, did she no real earnings projections. She did not really know the you know the what the companies are worth. It was not as meaningful as far as understanding what the quality of these businesses are. Uh, and for her, it was all about structuring a portfolio that would allow her to hold on to these great high-quality, dominant companies for the long term. And that was basically a very good lesson um, that I learned from Madam Index. And, and today, you know, professional managers try to come up with ways to, to beat her, you know, and to, to compete with her. Um, you know, they, they'll say, well, you know, perhaps I could win in stock selection, you know, maybe risk management. You know, they'll buy companies and try to figure out maybe there's, the, there's a catalyst here or there, or, or I'll become an activist and all these, all my companies to try to unlock value, so to speak, uh, or maybe I'll just buy all companies that are just cheap, you know. Uh, but for some reason, the way that Madam Index structured her portfolio, the way she select her companies, the way she manage her risk, um, is again um, is is pretty superior. Um, you look. Having said that, you know, in the book I outlined, um, um, you know. Managers that you know beat the index, um, um, and by focusing on their own two two areas, um, and uh, you know, Madam Index focused on quality, 
Um, and that's her main focus. Other people may focus on catalyst, but again, it's really about how um, how you're wired, and, and you could you could do well in the market uh, uh, if you know exactly what you're looking for. So anyway, that was the that was the way I was thinking about it. Yeah, when I uh, when I hear this, I think about uh, the coffee can approach that we talked with uh, Chris Mayer on our, uh, one of our recent episodes, and uh, and what was that? What was the coffee can approach? What was that? It's that you put your like you choose a maybe ten stocks and you put them away for ten years and you don't open the coffee can. You just put them in there and then you leave it, and then that has outperformed the market by far usually. Yeah, it's interesting because you know Fidelity did a study. I think it was just, I, don't, I forget what year it was. So they, they said which were the best performing accounts that they had. The best performing account, well, the second best performing account were the accounts that where the mat, the the account holder forgot that they had an account. That was the second best uh, performing account. Do you know what the the number one account was? That was the best performing account? I think I've heard about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, those accounts were the person was dead. <laughs> that, that was the best performing account, you know. And so you, you're right. I mean, you know, buying good companies and putting it away tend to do pretty well. It's a good lesson. Yeah. The original article of, of the coffee can is by Robert Kirby. It was published in 1984. And he, he is giving some critique to S&P 500. That's why I thought it was interesting because he he's claiming that like several hundreds of transactions are going on in the S&P 500 every decade. And that causes some transaction costs for holders of the index. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And also he writes that uh, these decisions that are taken, they are not made by it's not mechanical. It's actually individual judgments by Standard & Poor's staff. They have a committee, and that is still the case, and they make the final call. So they're not always rational. I mean, they kept AIG, for example, after the crisis, because uh, the 2009 crisis, because they didn't want to... If they would kick AIG out, I mean, and the, the government just backed it up, they, it would, they would crush the stock. So, Yeah, yeah which, which, which is a great point, which kind of leads to the point about risk management, you know, um, you know, having, you know, structuring a portfolio where you could hold on to situation like AIG is just as good as finding the highest quality company. You know, um, you know, being able to hold on to good ideas um, is, I think, where a lot of people sometimes fall short on because there's a lot of great ideas. The question is, can you hold on to it for the long term and can you withstand certain drawdowns? Um, in your portfolio, like an AIG or or, or, or something or a company that doesn't uh, do very very well, and I think that uh, you know Matt and Mendex have shown time and time again having a well diversified portfolio, having small position, tend to win out over the long term. Yeah, and in the book you mentioned many uh, interesting case examples where you have gained like really good returns, like fifty percent in just a few months or so. But you also write that you in general believe that buy and hold strategy is is good, but duration matters and you think three to five years is better than five to ten years so so do you still hold on to that or what is your time horizon these days yeah you know i like to think of um you know holding a company for long term should be almost kind of by mistake in that you know if things continue to get better if you believe you know your conviction level is still pretty high and you have to you know reevaluate maybe it's every you know six months maybe every year but you should be periodically where you're reevaluating the situation and if you look back and say hey you know I've owned this company for 12 years well that's fantastic but you know companies you know change you know we've seen this with the you know 
large company like GE or, or um, you know, um, AIG, you kind of mentioned, and you have to be able to, um, you know, you're not going to, to top tick when it actually happening that moment, but, you know, maybe a quarter or two afterwards, you should say, okay, well, it's no longer the same company that I purchased in the first place or a year ago or two years ago, three years ago that I need to exit. So, and I think that, sh- again, you know, o- owning a company for 10 plus years should be almost by accident because it just so happens that I was able to own it for that long. And uh, with your long experience in the industry, it would be interesting to hear your perspective on how the market has evolved in the last decades and what that means for investors. Yeah, you know, when when I, you know when I began my career in the, in the early 1990s, you know, I was going, you know, I was doing my analysis to buy or sell shares of a company, you know, um, you know, and I would kind of, you know, sell the shares basically to to a person across the street, maybe at at Putnam or Wellington. Um, you know, that fundamental you know, I would say person-driven to person-driven transaction is happening less frequently. You know, in certain corners of the market, in certain corners of the market, you know, the the most potent buyers and sellers are these you know new entrants. Um, they, you know, they are more rules-based and seamless, seemingly what I think basically less human. You know, you know, we noticed around 2011 or so something was basically happening in the markets uh, that was making you know. The, the, the companies uh, or the market a little bit less, um, uh, you know, people um, driven. You know, we noticed that around 2011, there were more ETFs, more quant funds, uh, more rules-based kind of strategies, more mechanical strategy becoming bigger players in the markets. In fact, by 2016, I think the number of ETFs actually eclipsed the number of publicly traded companies. And, you know, this had consequences, you know. One, you know, one of the things we looked at was uh, correlation to our performance, and we found that you know traditional factors are would begin to have minimal um, uh, impact to our performance. You know, you know those historical opportunities of, of these factors were basically being more arbitraged away. In other words, you know, if you were to pick the best performing stocks in the S&P 500 this year, or last year, you'll find cheap companies outperform, expensive companies outperform. Um, companies with catalysts outperforms, companies with no catalysts outperform. So basically, it was a basically all over place. Um, and even in a three to five year time frame, when we looked at this, we said, wow, okay, it's interesting. After three to five years, it looks like if you buy cheap companies, you start to make outperformance, it starts to become more correlated with outperformance in, when, you, when you go out three to five years. But when we look a little bit deeper into that, we noticed that it wasn't so much the, the value, the, the cheapness. That was um, that changed, but it was much more that something in t- in the company was getting better. What we call the source of return capital. For example, maybe you know there was too much capacity in the industry, and now you know three or five years later, there's there's less capacity, so the company had more pricing power, and that therefore they were able to generate more profits. Or maybe they had a bloated cost structure. It took them two three years to to narrow that cost structure down, grew margins. So if you Peel the onion and say, okay, why, where was the inflection point? Yes, you bought a company that, was, that, that had some issues that was priced cheaply in the market because the market was saying this is not a valuable company because they had these two, three issues. When those issues go away, then it becomes a more valuable company. So our thinking is that it's not so much you just buy something cheaply and just wait. Yes, that can work, but it ha- you have to understand what the source 
is is doing or uh, what the source of return comport is today and what is likely to catalyze it going forward and again as we've talked about before you know time could be could be a side, uh, soft catalyst in that uh, in that situation so i think more you know uh, i think with more strategies and and and, and less stocks to choose from um, um, i think that is going to be the um, uh, it's going to be a little bit more trickier given the fact that there's more more um, uh, quant you know quant funds out there. So do you go to the smaller companies or do you go to another pool to find your ideas or where are you? Yeah, you know it's interesting. One of uh, Warren Buffett's letters, um, uh, I, uh, this is a Berkshire Hathaway letter. I forget what year. I think it was two thousand and two. Um, he, he talks about, you know, he rarely talks about his um, his mistakes. And one of the things that he talked about when his mistakes was that I think it was a mid, mid-American energy where he was talking about <clears throat> um, how, you know, uh, you know, focusing on uh, key variables. And that basically you say if you have a, a companies with a lot of key variables, um, your, your, the probability of being right is much less than having a company with one or two variable. So one of the reasons why I focus on large cap um, dust-related companies with hard assets and cash flows because these tend to have one or two key sources. The smaller you go down in the market cap, the more variables. So with smaller companies, maybe they have to reduce, to reduce their debt or maybe they have to, they're entering a new market. Maybe there's a product innovation they're working on. So there's all these things going on. And I think that if you could get you know, three out of the five right, the stock could be up 60%. And gosh, you know, you definitely, definitely deserve it. But for large cap industrial companies where, you know, they've been around for 50, 60 years, you know, you know, um, you know, it's usually uh, one of key, two, you know, one or two key sources. Maybe it's pricing power, maybe it's volume, maybe it's because 80% of, the, of their of their input costs are copper and copper is going down, so margin expanding. Um, so, so I tend to focus on companies where it's, it, they lean on one or two key sources. And a trend I want to discuss with you was the, I mean, we've seen uh, that some brand businesses have had uh, problems in, in recent years. Um, and how do you, how do you um, see those big moves coming uh, that, are, that are not quite rare, but, uh, but sometimes these businesses with few variables um, get attacked from the outside, so to speak. So how do you how do you um, keep track on the on those events? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And you know, one of the things that I learned early on is that you you know you have to write down all the all the mistakes you're willing to live with. And um, and this is a very powerful exercise, at least for me, to write down. These are the things that it's okay. You know, um, I buy a company and something happens in, in, in Congress or in policies and they change the whole structure of an industry or something of that nature that, okay, well, that was not, you know, th- th- that was not the reason why I buy it and, and, and it, you know, it comes out of left field. Um, but at the end of the day, if you think about value investing, you know, we're really buying business track records. That's what we're buying. And, the problem is that if whatever that you've described has happened before, the company should give you a sense how they handle it. Um, and, that's, and that's part of your decision-making in terms of whether you want to own, own this business or not. Um, 
you know, that at the end of the day is what we're trying to do. Buy companies with good business track records. That's why I like working and looking at large cap industrial related companies that have a 20, 30 year track record. You know, we, I could see how they perform during a recession as interest rates are rising, falling, you know, new administrations or new global politics. And so I could assess those um, and I could assess how the business functions. Um, newer companies, um, not so much because their, their track record is, is much smaller. Um, so to answer your question directly, it's, it really depends. Is it on my, the list of things that I, I definitely do not know that would have happened? And, and if that's the case, I just get out of the company. Uh, maybe there's a, um, maybe there's a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a large fire or they, or something of that nature, or, or something happens in the company that was, for, uh, or maybe there's this, you know, CEO did something that, that's really, you know, tanking the stock. Um, then you just kind of get out of it. But all other things, I think, um, should the business should have um, some kind of a track record to 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 be able to assess the situation. It seems like the 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 Buffett way on, I mean, betting against uh, change and not on change. Would you say that's it's, it's you have a similar approach? Um, yes, I would. I would. I would say that. I would say I think that's a good way of putting it. So you say you document all your decisions. How do you do that? Is uh, do you have a systematic approach to it? Yeah. So, um, so the the only um, so the way I like to think about it is that you know um, you want to invest in a system, right? So um, that system has to have some kind of guardrails. So it's not so much documenting every decision, but more more or less having a, a framework. But what I do write down is obviously the reason why I like the 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 stock and, and and things of that nature. But on the other hand, I also write down um, for all companies, not individual companies, but all investment investments, things that it's okay for me um, to be wrong, quote unquote wrong on. You know, um, tax rate was higher this quarter than you know they expected because we're not trading, we're not tra- we're not daily traders, so that's okay. Um, you know, sell side analysts, you know, downgrades the stocks and the stocks down like three, four percent. That's totally okay. We could totally live with that. Um, you know, so there are certain things that's totally okay. What we cannot um, that's uh, live with is um, are things that's basically in 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 the in the history of the of the company, whether it's you know the company does not perform well when X Y Z happens and X Y Z is happening and we're buying more shares and and why are we doing that? Um, so to be able to look back and say, okay, this is the track record and this is what we're buying is a very important uh, tool that we use here. Uh, and uh, we know that you have studied the, what factors that are most important for returns uh, in the next year. And, and that's not price, which is a bit surprising. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, look, at the end of the day, it, you know, it, it's really about focusing on, on fundamentals, um, not so much kind of factors of you know, um, but really fundamentals. Uh, what I like to call the deep reality of a business, which we believe is the source of return to employee. Um, this is the basis of basically our decision making um, uh, because we found that uh, you know, uh, the source of return to employee is most correlated with our performance. You know, large companies are basically, as I mentioned, kind of like proxies for for one or two key sources. You know, it could be pricing power, it could be you know, company competitive win rate, 
for example. Um, and if you specialize, or you know, Buffett would say, if you have a core competence, it will give you the ability to boil down these you know, large, complex companies into one of the key sources. Maybe the company you're buying is really, really buying you know, steel, or maybe you're really buying, um, you know, uh, a, a company with uh, a good, you know, uh, uh, you know, tax um, 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 system. Uh, it could be where you know you're really bar- buying a company where um, they have a, a monopoly in a certain market. Um, so really, to understand what is the real, the real source of return capital is very, very important. And we noticed that it, um, you know about 85% of a company's return capital is born of a subsector. So you'll see a lot of companies within a some same subsector, particularly in the large cap industrial kind of related companies, they all will trade together. You know, um, you know, if, if you're if, if you're a large company and you're able to raise prices, chances are your next competitor will be able to raise prices as well. And management adds about you know, 15, you know, 10 to 15 percent upside or 10, 15 to 20 percent upside to return cap employed. Maybe the, the, the country, ha- the company has a, has a better culture. Maybe they have better procurement. Maybe their location is a little bit different. But by and large, 85 um, percent of a company's return cap employed is born in the subsector. And if you can understand the source, you, you're basically a large part of the way there. So I would say that, you know, um, you know, understanding company's source or, uh, source of return employed is most important. Um, and you know, it's interesting because you know um, one of the one of the questions that you know um, you know uh, I would ask interns um, when we interview them is you know if you were to have a stock portfolio to lose money, you know how would you do it? You know how would you do it? Would you short you know expensive companies? Is that is that how you you know if you if you just wanted to lose money? How would you do it? I mean, I think shorting these space companies would be a problem, right? Would you just, um, you know, uh, short cheap companies? Well, that, that doesn't make any sense either. And those are two factors that people talk about all the time. Oh, I bought a cheap or I bought a... So why, how would you go about putting a portfolio where you want to lose money? And this is something that I think, uh, um, I think Mobison talks about this a lot in terms of, you know, um, luck and skill. You know, um, you know, uh, if you could lose on purpose, um, it shows that you, you have a little bit more skill uh, in the game. And if you think about it, um, can you put a portfolio together uh, where you could you, you lose money in a month or two? And how would you go about doing it? My guess is that if you think about it and you start to pull it together, you start to talk about the source of return employee. I've heard about that the short sellers track record isn't isn't too good maybe that not that they that they lose on average but the that returns are really really low um, and maybe that's a proof of, of what you're saying and the market is not a non-zero-sum game as well or hasn't been historically <laughs> and when you calculate the return on capital employed is it a conventional way or how do you go about it yeah that's a great question so um f- so it's it's not um, so there's different ways of I mean uh, if I calculate one way and I get I don't know thirty percent and you calculate another way you get you know thirty three if I if you have the CEO of the company or a CFO of the company they get you know thirty six and basically it's all all over the place and that's so, and it's not so much the number it's really the source so if you have a if you ask let's say a CFO um, of a company and they say hey you know um, 
Jill, you know, what, what's the, what's the return on comploid of the company? And they say, well, you know, she'll say, okay, you know, it's it's about twenty eight percent. And I would say, you know, you know, uh, do you think you could get it to thirty two? And they say, yeah, yeah, I think we get it to thirty one, thirty two at some point. And, and then I ask her, how will you get it to thirty one, thirty two? Now she will start talking about the source. Maybe she'll start talking about, well, we need to raise prices. Or she'll say, well, you know, um, this input cost is really draining on our returns. I think that it's peaking. Um, we're, we're hedging here and there. And I think once that comes in a little bit, you, you'll start seeing margins expand. Um, or it could be, um, you know, where we have a really bloated kind of, you know, cost structure. Um, our new CEO has come in to put a plan together to get us back in line. And that's how we could get there. That's the source. So the fact that it's, 27 to go to 32 or 16 to go to 20, the number isn't really that important. It's really the direction and the source of how it's going to get there. So in the book, you mentioned many profitable investments, and you, but you also mentioned uh, now how Buffett talks about his mistakes. So we're curious what your biggest lessons are <laughs> from when things not yeah. play out as you want them to. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, um, you know, I'm not going to give any names, but uh, but one thing I okay, I'll give you two big lessons um, and how I try to fix them. And the two, my two biggest lessons that I've learned over the years was in the bucket of business and the bucket of margin safety. So um, you know, I sometimes often get businesses wrong. So it could be that I believe that. Um, this company really has pricing power. They have X, Y, Z going for them and something changes in the marketplace. Or I, th I believe that, I don't know, Amazon is not going to enter the market. Then, and, you know, two months later, they're into the market, you know. Um, and so um, kind of getting, getting the businesses wrong is something that, um, um, that happens a lot. Um, and so um, one of the things that, um, that, over the years that I, I tend to do is, and this is what basically I learned from um, Adam Index, was, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, looking at, you know, what I call galopolis, you know, companies that are, uh, you know, monopolies, oligopolies, you know, duopolies, companies that basically have some sort of market share or some sort of power among their, where they operate in. And so, um, um, and I found that that's been very, very helpful in terms of, You know, when something happens from left, left field, they're able to protect their share or participate in it. So that's one, one way that um, we try to focus. And also what I said earlier about buying business track records. So, uh, you know, I tend to stay away from, you know, companies that are uh, a little bit newer that um, we may not know how they perform in, let's say, in a high inflation environment, for example, or a company where interest rates going up or down or, um, things of that sort. So, um, so it's really understanding, um, having the, the the track record of the business. I think is very very important. The other area is really about you know margin safety, and what I learned there is that, you know, margin safety often needs a little bit of backup. You know, <laughs> you know, and and that lends into portfolio construction. You know, it's kind of like you know you you buy a stock at twenty three bucks, you do your analysis, you, know, you think the you know. Uh, liquidation value or what have you is around 18 bucks, you know? And so I could, so you buy the stock at, you know, um, you, you buy a stock around 20, 19, $20, you know, downside or 18. 
and they get and then the stock get cut gets uh, cut in half. Right, um, something happens. Uh, now, what do you do with the nine dollars share price when, when your margin safety was eight? Well, you could do thesis creep, and well, you know we have we have a new margin safety. You know, it's a you know, <laughs> not seven bucks. <laughs> like, you know, um, and and but that's not the most prudent thing to do. Uh, margin safety does not know anything about the macro, like a pandemic or adverse industry events. I mean, I talk about you know someone like you know Amazon like going into I don't know. The, the grocery business or something like that. They try to have the whole sector get down by 40% um, in, in one day or, or people decide they don't want to go shopping malls anymore. They just want to stay home and, 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 and buy things online. So all sorts of things can happen. And what happens to your in margin safety analysis? Um, you know, one thing I learned running abs- absolute return strategies is uh, over the past, you know, decade or so is to panic early. You know, um, and, you know, having the right portfolio construct to assist you in margin safety analysis should be always, should always, always be considered, um, you know, having a portfolio construct where perhaps you have smaller positions. Um, maybe you have a long and short book. Um, so you could be, be able to hold on to some of these really good companies um, when uh, situational things happen that, that, are, that uh, adversely affect the stock price. So go, going in a bit to your your current role um, and uh, you as a as a money money manager, um, I would like to start to ask a question about the subject that I feel is a bit underappreciated. Um, so as as different mutual funds fit different investors, different stocks fit different types of investors. But reading the financial media, you you often just just get a a, a list of stocks to buy. These are the top names this month or or so on, without any nuance. Uh, so what's your view uh, on that? And how do you make sure that your investors are aligned with your strategy? Oh, that's, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a great question. And I think, you know, I think that, you know, that's actually, the, I believe, Buffett's biggest you know, advantage, you know, having that alignment. You know, one of the things I learned early on in my career is that, you know, there are many, many good ideas out there, just fantastic ideas out there. But I may not be the best owner for that particular idea. You know, um, it could be a great strategy. You know, it could be a great way to run money, but I may not have the right temperament to execute it. Um, I may not just be wired that way. Um, you know, I observed early on that, you know, the most important decision I will ever make it just is to decide which arena to enter. Are you going to enter the venture capital arena, um, the value investing arena, the growth arena, the trading arena? Um, the key is to pick an arena, an investment style or strategy or an idea that really fits the personality um, that you that fits your own personality. And that you could basically win with. You know, I tell, you know, I tell young people all the time is that you know you need to combine your real self, your real self, with your real skills and your real temperament. You have to combine those three things. And if you're not your authentic self, um, you know, maybe you know, maybe you don't like waking up early in the morning, so you may not want to run a global portfolio. <laughs> To trade, you know that that just may not fit you well. Um, you may be, 
really excited about being active daily, um, you may get bored being a long-term value investor where you're buying good businesses and just reading um, you know, um, newspapers and you're reading company annual reports all day. That just may not be your, it, just be, it could be a great strategy, but it doesn't fit your temperament. It doesn't fit your skill set. Your skill set may be totally, totally different. So you need to align those things. And I think that's one of the things, and I think you said it very, very well. And I think that's one of the things that I think people don't fully appreciate when they, when they hear ideas. And one of the things that, you know, we do and we think about all the time is that, you know, look, that, you know, XYZ could be a great company, a great idea when we when you hear it on TV or you read about it, but does it fit our portfolio construct? Does it fit what we're trying to do? Will I be up all night worrying about, you know, what's going to happen this part, that part of the world? Or will, will I worry about, you know, the, the, you know, the accounting because um, I'm not a forensic accountant. Um, so you have to, the idea have to fit your skill set and also to your temperament. And at Ocean Park Investments, you have two funds. How are those strategies? Yeah, so we have an absolute return strategy, which is more, um, you know, the goal is really to compound capital, um, you know, at risk or just um, uh, levels and with but downside protection. Um, and the other, you know, um, which uh, which we plan on launching uh, hopefully uh, this year is really, um, it's more of a, you know, um, private equity approach in, in, in the public market. It's more of a um, uh, active ownership strategy. And uh, we, we call it the, uh, the Ocean Park Omaha strategy, which is really buying, you know, one or two good businesses, perhaps working with management teams and, and, and owning it for the long term. It's basically what I was doing when I was working with Michael Price uh, over, um, you know, some time ago, um, working in, uh, with management teams. So, again, it's, it's two different kind of um, uh, strategies, two different types of um, investor profiles. Um, but but at, at the core, the skill set's the same in terms of trying to understand what really uh, make uh, companies um, uh, spur uh, stock price appreciation and uh, with, with different um, time horizons. And in your daily life as a money manager, how are you spending the time? Reading, reading, reading. Uh, that's basically <laughs> why I do most, most of the time. I'm reading and also um, kind of learning more about the, the businesses and and um, the environments that they that they've um, um, uh, you know operate in. Um, you know, lately I've been doing a lot of reading on um, on how you know the ocean and how the ocean has really uh, been uh, kind of. Uh, um, uh, a bathtub for you know carbon emission for over the years you know pairing with uh, partnering with in- industrial companies you know we put all this stuff in the air and uh, how the ocean has really been absorbing that but but the problem is that you know the you know the 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 ocean uh, gets a little bit gets warmer you know as it that they take in a lot a lot of um, you know um, co2 so um, you know you see that this doesn't help the fish and it you know it really hurts a lot of these um um, uh, lesser developed countries as well, um, uh, island countries, um, and, and the warmer, you know, um, uh, ocean kind of changes weather patterns and, and things like that. So, so, you know, those are the things I'm, I'm, you know, I've been kind of speak, talking to management teams and uh, about and, and learning more about um, and seeing how, you know, how best to um, make sure that our portfolio, um, uh, portfolios are really uh, maximizing um, the opportunities that I think, um, you know, uh, the whole ecosystem and um, um, uh, the environment will, will, will present something in the near future. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. And I think the industrial-related companies, they're right at the center of this. I mean, some companies are so far behind 
on this these things. Um, and also, it's also about risk mitigation, right? So, you know, if 80% of your input costs are is coal, <laughs> you know, it's either, you know, it's either going away or you have to pay a lot for it, you know. Um, and if you're not, you know, if you're not ahead of the curve and in, in, in converting your plants and equipment to, to use more clean energy, that could, that you know, that could be a problem. So, you know, I'm really excited about uh, what's to come in that area. And so those are the kind of things I've been um, focusing on lately. And do you try to put a figure on that? I mean, do you try to put a figure on the externality that these businesses create? Or or is it more more like a binary approach where you say, okay, this is not, uh, this business is doing something harmful for the environment, so I pass? That's a great question. Um, so so we're, for us, it's really about how does it um, impact the source of return capital, period. And so, for example, if you have a cement company um, and, you know, there's going to be so many, I think uh, Bill Gates mentioned that there's going to be a new Manhattan built um, every month um, for the next 40 years. Um, you know, you know, if you look at all the global construction that's going on, they're likely to go um, going forward. So if you're a cement company, company and you have, uh, and you're carbon neutral, chances are you're probably going to gain market share. Chances are, governments and companies are probably going to buy a lot of your product because they too understand the need to lower the, the carbon. Um, and if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're not carbon neutral and you're doing things the same old way, uh, you probably start losing market share. Um, perhaps if you're carbon neutral, perhaps you could, you know, charge a higher premium for your product. Um, so that's a direct way that those things impact the source of return can employ pricing power or competitive win rates or input costs going down um you know will will you know um clean energy will is that cheaper than coal i believe that it is and it will continue to be um so if we could pinpoint how it um uh uh impacts the the source of return employed we're, we're all over it it's interesting with those uh, businesses that are of a threat in that way and I was reading when you talk about cement there was a there's an American company I think who is creating bio cement and they're like growing it in some way which is super yeah. organic and that yeah, becomes a, even if uh like the normal or the old company is now carbon neutral they are now facing a threat with a, a whole different substitute product that is maybe so much better and they I mean Clayton Christensen talks about this um disrupting and sustaining technologies and and i guess uh, you would you would never buy such a, a company right the, the 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 disruptor or you know you know look i mean that's a great question and again i think um i think you can make a lot of money buying disruptive companies it's just not it's just not aligned with, with what, who I am and what I do. I'm, you know, like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a venture capitalist. Like I, I, you know, I, you know, when I was in business school, I, you know, I think for the summer I looked at, you know, the private equity area and VC area. And like, I, you know, I'm just, look, I'm a, I'm an engineer by training. So in undergrad, I went to engineering school. So I'm a very kind of logical, like I need to see the numbers add up. And if you walk into my office and say, you know, I think we could send a lot of people to the moon, um, and you know, I, I, 
it just needs to I'm, I'm a little bit too overly logical. So um, um, not to say that's a good thing. I'm, it is what it is. Um, so that's why I lean towards companies that I could at least assess historically how they perform a certain way. Um, and look, I mean, you know, it's kind of like what Warren Buffett says, you know, um, you know, investing is not like gymnastics, you know, there's no style points, right? Um, if you go and generate 12, 20% returns, it's 12, 20% returns. You, you know, you could say, well, I, I bought this and that, and I did options, I did this, that, and I could say, well, I just bought this company because they were able to raise prices. And so, um, so that's, that's why I, I try to focus on and incidentally, uh, a lot of those companies are, tend to be less crowded. Um, they tend to be overlooked and, you know, I know that you guys are in, are in Europe right now. And so in the U S you know, as I'm sure you guys know, like, you know, in, in the West coast is like where all the technology companies are like Silicon Valley and all the VC players and also, in the, also in, in the East coast as well. But so where in the West, I used to think that, yeah, I sometimes say that people fly over, you know, middle America, which is where a lot of industrial companies are, you know, kind of the rust belt and, you know, a lot of trucking companies to go to like to Silicon Valley, you know. Um, so a lot of those options are not very, very crowded, you know. Um, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee is kind of like the Silicon Valley for truckers and logistic companies, you know. You know people, people don't know that, you know, or do they care, you know. Um, so, um, uh, so again, it's, it, that's, that's where I'm very comfortable. And um, one of the things you want to do is um, stay in the arena that you're most comfortable. And did you learn that from experience or was it early in your career? I think it was, I think it was early in my career. I think part of it is um, starting out as a value um, analyst, working with people like Michael Price and people who would uh, focus on balance sheets and um, cash flow. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to be a value investor if there's nothing really to analyze. Or if it's more about the future as opposed to the past, so that's why I, I like to say that you know value investing is really about busy, uh, buying business track records, and the longer the, the track record, the more I could assess what what the, and I could assess the the risk that I'm taking. And we know that another principle of yours is that you don't share investment ideas with uh, others. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I uh, share is is is, is harsh. It's uh, it, I tend. Is by experience, but you know, I think, um, uh, I, I think, I think for me, it's 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 um, it's it's really, I would say, it's really two issues. You know, um, it's it's there's a behavioral issue to it, in that um, you know, uh, it kind of, it could kind of affect the decisions I make with the portfolios. You know, for example, like promoting a situation that you know we're involved with um, creates some kind of bias. Um, you know, and also, you know, a lot of times when people share ideas, really, you know, they want the more complex kind of companies where, right, the really company that has a lot of hair on it, very, very interesting, um, you know, and is, you know, it's really fun to discuss. Um, and I think that it encourages kind of, you know, some sort of like smartest person in the room kind of syndrome where I got to show this, like how brilliant, how I was able to like, you know, decompose the balance sheet and like there was this off balance sheet thing going on and the management was turning over and, and I had to figure out what the interest rate and the tax rate was. So this is, you know, you want to, you know, do that to show how, how brilliant you are. And, I, and we, we tend to stay away from that. In reality, you know, some of the best ideas, as I mentioned, it could be, you know, as often like born situations that are just 
you know, that the that market just ignored. And over a year or two, you look back, well, wow, this company was up 30, 40%. You know, they didn't do anything spectacular. It's just that they were able to raise prices. You know, these decisions sometimes become, you know, when you, when you talk about them publicly, um, they sometimes become harder and harder to change when the facts change. You know, remember I talked about earlier about how owning a company for long term should be an accident. It should be because you're reevaluating it you know, periodically and it just so happened you own it for five, 10 years. But if something changes after a year or six months or nine months, then you need to be able to, to get out of it. And if you talk about these companies all the time, it just it's just harder to do so. Um, and the other thing I would mention as well is that, um, you know, the person who's, who's getting the idea do not have the complete picture. It's incomplete. So, you know, we have a portfolio construct that may allow us to hold on to companies that may have a, a drawdown a little bit longer than, you know, mom and pop, right? Um, you know, maybe we know that temporary drawdowns are okay and maybe we're buying more or maybe we're just letting it sit versus if you're kind of more directional. You know, if we have a long, short, you know, hedge uh, book and, and the market is down X percentage and we're kind of flat or so or down just a little bit. Uh, maybe we're adding more, whereas the directional investor who bought the stock is maybe they're down, you know, 20%. Um, so they don't really have the full picture. And, you know, it, you, know, it, you know, this was a decision um, I made, you know, not too long ago after, you know, I, I, made, I made a presentation on a short idea actually um, in a Bloomberg conference, um, you know, of a well-known company, I'm not going to mention here. Um, you know, the idea was basically down at around 70% last year or something of that nature. Uh, but it took a while to work. Um, you know, I, you know, um, and during the time when like it was hovering, going up a little bit, you know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I told, you know, told everyone how, how this company was going to implode and things of that nature, you know, I, I look, I give all the credit to people like, you know, Bill Ackman, who was able to, to have the, the stomach and the temperament the temperament um, to, to make these kind of kind of public announcements and things I need, but, but not, but not for me. Um, I think, um, I think I will, uh, yeah, probably at Ocean Park, I think we probably do so um, when we see a very clear benefit to stakeholders. Um, you know, the, the short idea that I presented um, uh, not too long ago, um, uh, you know, the company wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, you know, they weren't like you're hurting the planet or anything like nature. It's just that the numbers didn't add up. So um, in those situations, I just it's probably best to just kind of like do things quietly. Um, but uh, so anyway, that's how I kind of uh, fell into that. So it's uh, so it's basically by experience. Yeah, the behavioral aspect is really strong there. And uh, also talking about these different biases, what would you say are your most common ones? I think sometimes, although I focus on um, business track records, you know, I tend to l- try to lean into, you know, talk about what, what what's going to happen in the future, and I have to like keep myself from doing that. You know, I am not good at at timing or predicting the future. Now, you know, <laughs> it may sound a little odd for to hear that from an investor, right? Because like, geez, you know, this is all they do is talk about the future or think about it, but. You know, I cannot tell you, um, you know, how much the, you know, uh, electric vehicle market will will be, how big it's going to be and who will be the winners. Or if we are going to be taking vacations to the moon or spending our weekends at the, you know, in the metaverse. I, I, I we, we might, I, I couldn't tell you when, I, I don't, I don't really know. Look, I, like I said, like, I'm not a venture capitalist. 
you know, I buy business track records. Um, I know in the future people will do things like eat and seek shelter. And, you know, they will like meet friends and, and loved ones. You know, I kind of, you know, think of myself as the picks and shovels person, you know, uh, buying companies that provide the components to make um, these, uh, these, th- you know, these things in the future a reality, you know, like material companies to help, you know, uh, make, you know, car batteries last a little longer or logistic companies or, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, like one of our longest investments had been um, a high tech, uh, you know, uh, high tech track tractors for farmers. You know, um, you know, people have to eat. And I know that, you know, they'll they'll, you know, people will eat in the future. Um, so I try to catch myself when I start uh, pontificating on on uh, too much on the future and what will happen and try to figure out, OK, if it does happen or does not happen, how can I participate based on companies that's been around for a long time? Um, and, uh, um, and that I could assess the likelihood of being successful. Yeah. And a, a chapter of the book that I really like is the, the one on emotional discipline. And I was wondering if you can define that for us, what is emotional discipline? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that Buffett talks about is, um, um, you know, kind of taking your emotions, um, uh, you know, from, from corrupting um, a framework. So it's really about, um, you know, having a framework to make decisions, first and foremost. You know, it could be a checklist or it could be, you know, you know five keys of, of, of areas that you look at in companies. Um, um, and, it's, and it's really understanding that it's really about process over outcome, right? So if you think about the process versus the outcome, and, and a lot of... Um, um, star athletes and also great teams and coaches talk about this a, a lot about, you know, just focus on the process. Yes, you will win some games, you will lose some games, but if you focus on the process, let the process do the, make the decision. So it's really about process over outcome. So if you have a process and you're not disciplined and emotionally disciplined to execute that process, then what's the point of having a process? So emotional discipline is really about um, um, having a, uh, the wherewithal to go through a process um, um, uh, t- towards the end. Um, you look, you could improve upon it, um, uh, but you should not let your emotions corrupt it, um, that process. And uh, do you have some other advice or inspiration for how to become a better thinker, better investor, or live a better life, some some principles in your life, maybe? Yeah, I think, you know, thinking independently, you know, I, I like to say, you know, don't put inertia ahead of wisdom, you know, like, you know, just because everyone else is doing it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the right thing, you know, it's not the right thing to do. Look, if everyone is running away from a burning building, then it's probably a good thing to do so as well. But but you need to understand that, look, um, you need to assess the situation yourself as well. So, um, you know, inertia is all around us, um, and particularly these you know, this, you know, these days with um, social media and, um, you know, um, there's so many opportunities to, to, to uh, look at companies and, and things of that sort. So um, to really, you know, to really focus on your own personal wisdom. And wisdom um, um, is really about a, an aggregate of people that has been successful and learning the best qualities from them and learning um, the best qualities and, and based on your own temperament and putting it together to make your own decision. I think that's very, very important. And the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, kind of keeping it simple. This is the, the, the whole 
point that Buffett often makes uh, as well. And, um, and I think if you could a- explain your investments to a, you know, 12 year old, you know, why you own this particular company, I think it's a very, very good um, um, exercise to do every, every once in a while. This being a book podcast, we want to uh, talk a bit about your your reading habits. And I mean, both me and Eddie read a lot because we want to be better thinker, better investors, and uh, and and live a better life ultimately. So, what what books have shaped you? Yeah, I would I would uh, I would um, I would say first and foremost, I'm basically the partnership the Buffett, Buffett partnership letters that's um you know you have the annual you know the Berkshire Hathaway annual report but I'm talking about the the partnership letters um I think those are um superb um uh, and I think uh, he goes a little bit a lot of details in terms of um how he how he's thinking about um uh, the companies at the particular time um and I would say you know investment letters um by current pra- practitioners um, thought leaders like Howard Marks, um, you know John Rogers, um, you know Bruce Greenwald at, at the Columbia Business School. Um, obviously, you know Michael Mobison, and you know certain family offices. You know anyone that you would think would be, I would say, kind of in the first ballot Hall of Famers. You know uh, in the value investing uh, world, um, I would definitely read their uh, um, their their stuff. So, but in terms of you know um, you know kind of favorite books, I would say. You know, creating shareholder value uh, by Rappaport. Um, he was written some time ago. is is one of my all time favorites, and also the book that he and Mobison wrote. And actually, Mobison, I believe, was in your podcast not not too long ago. Um, the book that Mobison and, and Rappaport wrote. Um, it's called um, Expectation Investing. It's phenomenal. Um, it's a very detailed book in terms of like, it's almost like a step-by-step or um, it really gives you a really t- detailed look in terms of the analysis, in terms of um, looking at, you know, companies and also looking at the market. You know, I think uh, one of the things I got from that book was really about, you know, how would the market, how's the market thinking about the stock, right? You know, okay, you know, no, because no one cares how you, what you think about it. Right? You know, how's the market thinking about it? And it kind of links into what I said earlier before about, if the if the dynamics of the markets are changing a little bit in terms of there's more quantitative, mod, you know, um, quantitative um, um, strategies out there, more mechanical strategies, more ETFs, is the market looking at certain companies a little bit differently than they were 20, 30 years ago? So, so I I thought that that book is is this that was that's something that's that's on my shelf and I kind of. Um, it's all it's dog-eared and everything, and I kind of refer to it from time to time. Another one is you know investing by um, investing the last liberal arts by Hangstrom. Um, that's also a good one. Another one I would also highly recommend, which is not really often talked about, is um, the psychology of risk, um, and it's written by uh, I, um, um, Ari Keeve. Um, Ari is um, uh, he actually worked at. Um, uh, um, SAC, the um, the uh, um, you know point seven two of the former SAC was basically um, the um, the psychologist that would work with a lot of um, traders and portfolio managers. And I had a chance to meet him. Um, he actually wrote uh, three different books. Um, and I had a chance to meet him um, um, locally here uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, but the the book, the psychology of risk, is very very profound. And this was before this whole uh, movement on behavioral economics. And, and basically he talks about how um, he uses a lot of the 
psychological and mental game and mental training that a lot of athletes use. And he shows how a lot of it is, is, is very similar. And, um, and, and, uh, and it's, it's, I think it's a very powerful book, not only for, you know, value investors, but also growth investors. And as you could, you know, the firm that he was working with at the time, there were several different strategies. So, um, so I would definitely recommend that. And the last one I would say is uh, Klarman's margin safety. You know, you probably, you have to spend a couple thousand dollars these days to get a copy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if you could get a hand on, uh, on, on margin safety, it'll be, uh, it'll be definitely worth it. There's usually a lot of value in books compared to the price. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dennis, for taking the time to come on the podcast and, and share your thoughts uh, on, on how to become a better investor. And uh, before we finish up, uh, where can our audience follow you? Yeah, so um, um, I am not... Uh, I don't have a lot of, you know, social media kind of presence. I, I am on LinkedIn. So if you could shoot me a, a message, I'll be uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.